Book Nine, Chapters Thirteen through Twenty-Three of the City of God. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The City of God by Saint Augustine of Hippo, Book Nine, Chapter Thirteen. If now we endeavour to find between these opposites the mean occupied by the demons, there can be no question as to their local position. For between the highest and lowest place there is a place which is rightly considered and called the middle place. The other two qualities remain, and to them we must give greater care, that we may see whether they are altogether foreign to the demons, or how they are so bestowed upon them without infringing upon their immediate position. We may dismiss the idea that they are foreign to them, for we cannot say that the demons, being rational animals, are neither blessed nor wretched, as we say of the beasts and plants, which are void of feeling and reason, or, as we say of the middle place, that it is neither the highest nor the lowest. The demons, being rational, must be either miserable or blessed. And in like manner we cannot say that they are neither mortal nor immortal, for all living things either live eternally or end life in death. Our author, besides, stated that the demons are eternal. What remains for us to suppose, then, but that these mediate beings are assimilated to the gods in one of the two remaining qualities, and to men in the other? For if they received both from above, or both from beneath, they should no longer be mediate, but either rise to the gods above, or sink to men beneath. Therefore, as it has been demonstrated that they must possess these two qualities, they will hold their middle place if they receive one from each party. Consequently, as they cannot receive their eternity from beneath, because it is not there to receive, they must get it from above, and accordingly they have no choice but to complete their immediate position by accepting misery from men. According to the Platonists, then, the gods who occupy the highest place enjoy eternal blessedness or blessed eternity, men who occupy the lowest a mortal misery or a miserable mortality, and the demons who occupy the mean a miserable eternity or an eternal misery. As to those five things which Apuleius included in his definition of demons, he did not show, as he promised, that the demons are mediate. For three of them, that their nature is animal, their mind rational, their soul subject to passions, he said that they have in common with men, one thing their eternity in common with the gods, and one proper to themselves, their aerial body. How then are they intermediate when they have three things in common with the lowest, and only one in common with the highest? Who does not see that the intermediate position is abandoned in proportion as they tend to, and are depressed towards the lowest extreme? But perhaps we are to accept them as intermediate because of their one property of an aerial body, as the two extremes have each their proper body, the gods an ethereal, men a terrestrial body, and because two of the qualities they possess in common with man, they possess also in common with the gods, namely their animal nature and rational mind. For Apuleius himself, in speaking of gods and men, said, You have two animal natures. And Platonists are wont to ascribe a rational mind to the gods. Two qualities remain, their liability to passion, and their eternity, the first of which they have in common with men, the second with the gods, so that they are neither wafted to the highest nor depressed to the lowest extreme, but perfectly poised in their intermediate position. But then this is the very circumstance which constitutes the eternal misery or miserable eternity of the demons. For he who says that their soul is subject to passions would also have said that they are miserable, had he not blushed for their worshippers. 
Moreover, as the world is governed not by fortuitous haphazard, but, as the Platonists themselves avow, by the providence of the supreme God, the misery of the demons would not be eternal unless their wickedness were great. If, then, the blessed are rightly styled you demons, the demons intermediate between gods and men are not you demons. What, then, is the local position of those good demons, who, above men, but beneath the gods, afford assistance to the former, minister to the latter? For if they are good and eternal, they are doubtless blessed. But eternal blessedness destroys their intermediate character, giving them a close resemblance to the gods, and widely separating them from men. And therefore the Platonists will in vain strive to show how the good demons, if they are both immortal and blessed, can justly be said to hold a middle place between the gods, who are immortal and blessed, and men, who are mortal and miserable. For if they have both immortality and blessedness in common with the gods, and neither of these in common with men, who are both miserable and mortal, are they not rather remote from men and united with the gods than intermediate between them? They would be intermediate if they held one of their qualities in common with the one party, and the other with the other, as man is a kind of mean between angels and beasts, the beast being irrational and mortal animal, the angel a rational and immortal one, while man, inferior to the angel and superior to the beast, and having in common with the one mortality, with the other reason, is a rational and mortal animal. So, when we seek for an intermediate between the blessed immortals and miserable mortals, we should find a being which is either mortal and blessed, or immortal and miserable. Chapter 14 It is a great question among men whether man can be mortal and blessed. Some, taking the humbler view of his condition, have denied that he is capable of blessedness so long as he continues in this mortal life. Others, again, have spurned this idea, and have been bold enough to maintain that even though mortal, men may be blessed by attaining wisdom. But if this be the case, why are not these wise men constituted mediators between miserable mortals and the blessed immortals, since they have blessedness in common with the latter, and mortality in common with the former? Certainly, if they are blessed, they envy no one, for what more miserable than envy, but seek with all their might to help miserable mortals on to blessedness, so that after death they may become immortal, and be associated with the blessed and immortal angels. CHAPTER fifteen. But if, as is much more probable and credible, it must needs be that all men, so long as they are mortal, are also miserable, we must seek an intermediate who is not only man, but also God, that, by the interposition of his blessed mortality, he may bring men out of their mortal misery to a blessed immortality. In this intermediate two things are requisite, that he become mortal, and that he do not continue mortal. He did become mortal, not rendering the divinity of the word infirm, but assuming the infirmity of flesh. Neither did he continue mortal in the flesh, but raised it from the dead, for it is the very fruit of his mediation that those, for the sake of whose redemption he became the mediator, should not abide eternally in bodily death. Wherefore it became the mediator between us and God to have both a transient mortality and a permanent blessedness, that by that which is transient he might be assimilated to mortals, and might translate them from mortality to that which is permanent. Good angels, therefore, cannot mediate between miserable mortals and blessed immortals, for they themselves also are both blessed and immortal. But evil angels can mediate, because they are immortal like the one party, miserable like the other. To these is opposed the good mediator, who in opposition to their immortality and misery has chosen to be mortal for a time, and has been able to continue blessed in eternity. 
It is thus he has destroyed, by the humility of his death and the benignity of his blessedness, the proud immortals and hurtful wretches, and has prevented them from seducing to misery, by their boast of immortality, those men whose hearts he has cleansed by faith, and whom he has thus freed from their impure dominion. Man, then, mortal and miserable, and far removed from the immortal and the blessed, what medium shall he choose by which he may be united to immortality and blessedness? The immortality of the demons, which might have some charm for man, is miserable. The mortality of Christ, which might offend man, exists no longer. In the one there is the fear of an eternal misery, in the other death, which could not be eternal, can no longer be feared, and blessedness, which is eternal, must be loved. For the immortal and miserable mediator interposes himself to prevent us from passing to a blessed immortality, because that which hinders such a passage, namely misery, continues in him. But the mortal and blessed mediator interposed himself, in order that, having passed through mortality, he might of mortals make immortals, showing his power to do this in his own resurrection, and from being miserable to raise them to the blessed company from the number of whom he had himself never departed. There is, then, a wicked mediator who separates friends, and a good mediator who reconciles enemies. And those who separate are numerous, because the multitude of the blessed are blessed only by their participation in the one God, of which participation the evil angels being deprived, they are wretched, and interposed to hinder rather than to help to this blessedness, and by their very number prevent us from reaching that one beatific good, to obtain which we need not many, but one mediator, the uncreated word of God, by whom all things were made, in a partaking of whom we are blessed." I do not say that he is a mediator because he is the Word, for as the Word he is supremely blessed and supremely immortal, and therefore far from miserable mortals. But he is mediator as he is man, for by his humanity he shows us that, in order to obtain that blessed and beatific good, we need not seek other mediators to lead us through the successive steps of this attainment, but that the blessed and beatific God, having himself become a partaker of our humanity, has afforded us ready access to the participation of his divinity. For in delivering us from our mortality and misery, he does not lead us to the immortal and blessed angels, so that we should become immortal and blessed by participating in their nature, but he leads us straight to that trinity by participating in which the angels themselves are blessed. Therefore, when he chose to be in the form of a servant, and lower than the angels, that he might be our mediator, he remained higher than the angels in the form of God, himself at once the way of life on earth, and life itself in heaven. Chapter 16. That opinion which the same Platonist avers that Plato uttered is not true, that no God holds intercourse with men. And this, he says, is the chief evidence of their exaltation that they are never contaminated by contact with men. He admits, therefore, that the demons are contaminated, and it follows that they cannot cleanse those by whom they are themselves contaminated, and thus all alike become impure, the demons by associating with men, and men by worshipping the demons. Or if they say that the demons are not contaminated by associating and dealing with men, then they are better than the gods, for the gods, were they to do so, would be contaminated. For this, we are told, is the glory of the gods, that they are so highly exalted that no human intercourse can sully them. 
He affirms indeed that the supreme God, the creator of all things, whom we call the true God, is spoken of by Plato as the only God whom the poverty of human speech fails even passably to describe, and that even the wise, when their mental energy is as far as possible delivered from the trammels of connection with the body, have only such gleams of insight into his nature as may be compared to a flash of lightning illumining the darkness. If, then, this supreme God, who is truly exalted above all things, does nevertheless visit the minds of the wise, when emancipated from the body, with an intelligible and ineffable presence, though this be only occasional, and as it were a swift flash of light athwart the darkness, why are the other gods so sublimely removed from all contact with men, as if they would be polluted by it, as if it were not a sufficient refutation of this to lift up our eyes to those heavenly bodies which give the earth its needful light? If the stars, though they by his account are visible gods, are not contaminated when we look at them, neither are the demons contaminated when men see them quite closely. But perhaps it is the human voice and not the eye which pollutes the gods, and therefore the demons are appointed to mediate and carry men's utterances to the gods, who keep themselves remote through fear of pollution? What am I to say of the other senses? For by smell neither the demons, who are present, nor the gods, though they were present in inhaling the exhalations of living men, would be polluted if they are not contaminated with the effluvia of the carcasses offered in sacrifice. As for taste, they are pressed by no necessity of repairing bodily decay, so as to be reduced to ask food from men. And touch is in their own power. For while it may seem that contact is so called because the sense of touch is specially concerned in it, yet the gods, if so minded, might mingle with men, so as to see and be seen, hear and be heard, and where is the need of touching? For men would not dare to desire this if they were favoured with the sight or conversation of gods or good demons. And if, through excessive curiosity, they should desire it, how could they accomplish their wish without the consent of the god or demon, when they cannot touch so much as a sparrow unless it be caged? There is, then, nothing to hinder the gods from mingling in a bodily form with men, from seeing and being seen, from speaking and hearing. And if the demons do thus mix with men, as I said, and are not polluted, while the gods, were they to do so, should be polluted, then the demons are less liable to pollution than the gods. And if even the demons are contaminated, how can they help men to attain blessedness after death, if, so far from being able to cleanse them and present them clean, to the unpolluted gods, these mediators are themselves polluted. And if they cannot confer this benefit on men, what good can their friendly mediation do? Or shall its result be not that men find entrance to the gods, but that men and demons abide together in a state of pollution, and consequently of exclusion from blessedness? Unless, perhaps, someone may say, that like sponges or things of that sort, the demons themselves, in the process of cleansing their friends, become themselves the filthier in proportion as the others become clean. But if this is the solution, then the gods, who shun contact or intercourse with men for fear of pollution, mix with demons who are far more polluted. Or perhaps the gods, who cannot cleanse men without polluting themselves, can without pollution cleanse the demons who have been contaminated by human contact. Who can believe such follies unless the demons have practiced their deceit upon him? If seeing and being seen is contamination, and if the gods, whom Apuleius himself calls visible, the brilliant lights of the world, and the other stars are seen by men, are we to believe that the demons, who cannot be seen unless they please, are safer from contamination? Or if it is only the seeing and not the being seen which contaminates, then they must deny that these gods of theirs, these brilliant lights of the world, see men when their rays beam upon the earth. 
their rays are not contaminated by lighting on all manner of pollution, and are we to suppose that the gods would be contaminated if they mixed with men, and even if contact were needed in order to assist them? For there is contact between the earth and the sun's or moon's rays, and yet this does not pollute the light. CHAPTER Seventeen. I am considerably surprised that such learned men, men who pronounce all material and sensible things to be altogether inferior to those that are spiritual and intelligible, should mention bodily contact in connection with a blessed life. Is that sentiment of plotness forgotten? We must fly to our beloved fatherland. There is the father, there are all. What fleet or flight shall convey us thither? Our way is to become like God." If, then, one is nearer to God, the liker he is to him, there is no other distance from God than unlikeness to him. And the soul of man is unlike that incorporeal and unchangeable and eternal essence, in proportion as it craves things temporal and mutable. And as the things beneath, which are mortal and impure, cannot hold intercourse with the immortal purity which is above, a mediator is indeed needed to remove this difficulty, but not a mediator who resembles the highest order of being by possessing an immortal body, and the lowest by having a diseased soul, which makes him rather grudge that we be healed than help our cure. We need a mediator, who, being united to us here below by the mortality of his body, should at the same time be able to afford us truly divine help in cleansing and liberating us by means of the immortal righteousness of his spirit, whereby he remain heavenly even while here upon earth. Far be it from the incontaminable God to fear pollution from the man he assumed, or from the men among whom he lived in the form of a man. For, though his incarnation showed us nothing else, these two wholesome facts were enough, that true divinity cannot be polluted by flesh, and that demons are not to be considered better than ourselves because they have not flesh. This, then, as Scripture says, is the mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, of whose divinity, whereby he is equal to the Father, and humanity, whereby he has become like us, this is not the place to speak as fully as I could. CHAPTER Eighteen. As to the demons, these false and deceitful mediators, who, though their uncleanness of spirit frequently reveals their misery and malignity, yet by virtue of the levity of their aerial bodies and the nature of the places they inhabit, do contrive to turn us aside and hinder our spiritual progress, they do not help us towards God, but rather prevent us from reaching Him. Since even in the bodily way which is erroneous and misleading, and in which righteousness does not walk, for we must rise to God not by bodily assent, but by incorporeal or spiritual conformity to him. In this bodily way, I say, which the friends of the demons arrange according to the weight of the various elements, the aerial demons being set between the ethereal gods and earthy men, they imagine the gods to have this privilege, that by this local interval they are preserved from the pollution of human contact. Thus they believe that the demons are contaminated by men rather than men cleansed by the demons, and that the gods themselves should be polluted unless their local superiority preserved them. Who is so wretched a creature as to expect purification by a way in which men are contaminating, demons contaminated, and gods contaminable? Who would not rather choose that way whereby we escape the contamination of the demons, and are cleansed from pollution by the incontaminable god, so as to be associated with the uncontaminated angels? Chapter 19. But as some of these demonolators, as I may call them, and among them Labeo, allege that those whom they call demons are by others called angels, I must, if I would not seem to dispute merely about words, say something about the good angels. The Platonists do not deny their existence, but prefer to call them good demons. 
but we, following scripture, according to which we are Christians, have learned that some of the angels are good, some bad, but never have we read in scripture of good demons. But wherever this or any cognate term occurs, it is applied only to wicked spirits. And this usage has become so universal that even among those who are called pagans, and who maintain that demons as well as gods should be worshipped, there is scarcely a man, no matter how well read and learned, who would dare to say by way of praise to his slave, You have a demon, or who could doubt that the man to whom he said this would consider it a curse? Why then are we to subject ourselves to the necessity of explaining away what we have said when we have given offence by using the word demon, with which every one or almost every one connects a bad meaning, while we can so easily evade this necessity by using the word angel? Chapter 20 However, the very origin of the name suggests something worthy of consideration if we compare it with the divine books. They are called demons from a Greek word meaning knowledge. Now the apostle speaking with the Holy Spirit, says, Knowledge puffeth up, but charity buildeth up. And this can only be understood as meaning that without charity knowledge does no good, but inflates a man or magnifies him with empty windiness. The demons, then, have knowledge without charity, and are thereby so inflated or proud that they crave those divine honors and religious services which they know to be due to the true God, and still, as far as they can, exact these from all over whom they have influence. Against this pride of the demons, under which the human race was held subject as its merited punishment, there was exerted the mighty influence of the humility of God, who appeared in the form of a servant. But men, resembling the demons in pride, but not in knowledge, and being puffed up with uncleanness, failed to recognize him. CHAPTER Twenty One. The devils themselves knew this manifestation of God so well that they said to the Lord, though clothed with the infirmity of flesh, what have we to do with thee, Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us before the time? From these words it is clear that they had great knowledge, and no charity. They feared his power to punish, and did not love his righteousness. He made known to them so much as he pleased, and when he was pleased to make known so much as was needful. But he made himself known not as to the holy angels, who know him as the word of God, and rejoice in his eternity, which they partake, but as was requisite to strike with terror the beings from whose tyranny he was going to free those who were predestined to his kingdom and the glory of it, eternally true and truly eternal. He made himself known, therefore, to the demons, not by that which is life eternal, and the unchangeable light which illumines the pious, whose souls are cleansed by the faith that is in him, but by some temporal effects of his power, and evidences of his mysterious presence, which were more easily discerned by the angelic senses even of wicked spirits than by human infirmity. But when he judged it advisable gradually to suppress these signs, and to retire into deeper obscurity, the prince of the demons doubted whether he were the Christ, and endeavoured to ascertain this by tempting him, in so far as he permitted himself to be tempted, that he might adapt the manhood he wore to be an example for our imitation. But after that temptation, when, as Scripture says, he was ministered to by the angels who were good and holy, and therefore objects of terror to the impure spirits, he revealed more and more distinctly to the demons how great he was, so that even though the infirmity of his flesh might seem contemptible, none dared to resist his authority. CHAPTER Twenty Two. The good angels, therefore, hold cheap all that knowledge of material and transitory things which the demons are so proud of possessing. Not that they are ignorant of these things, but because the love of God, whereby they are sanctified, is very dear to them, 
and because in comparison of that not merely immaterial but also unchangeable and ineffable beauty with the holy love of which they are inflamed they despise all things which are beneath it and all that is not it that they may with every good thing that is in them enjoy that good which is the source of their goodness and therefore they have a more certain knowledge even of those temporal and mutable things because they contemplate their principles and causes in the word of god by which the world was made those causes by which one thing is approved another rejected and all arranged but the demons do not behold in the wisdom of god these eternal and as it were cardinal causes of things temporal but only foresee a larger part of the future than men do by reason of their greater acquaintance with the signs which are hidden from us Sometimes, too, it is their own intentions they predict. And finally, the demons are frequently, the angels never, deceived. For it is one thing, by the aid of things temporal and changeable, to conjecture the changes that may occur in time, and to modify such things by one's own will and faculty, and this is to a certain extent permitted to the demons. It is another thing to foresee the changes of times in the eternal and immutable laws of God, which live in his wisdom, and to know the will of God, the most infallible and powerful of all causes, by participating in his spirit, and this is granted to the holy angels by a just discretion. And thus they are not only eternal, but blessed, and the good wherein they are blessed is God, by whom they were created, for without end they enjoy the contemplation and participation of him. Chapter 23 if the Platonists prefer to call these angels gods rather than demons, and to reckon them with those whom Plato, their founder and master, maintains were created by the supreme God, they are welcome to do so, for I will not spend strength in fighting about words. For if they say that these beings are immortal, and yet created by the supreme God, blessed, but by cleaving to their creator, and not by their own power, they say what we say, whatever name they call these things by and that this is the opinion either of all or the best of the Platonists can be ascertained by their writings. And regarding the name itself, if they see fit to call such blessed and immortal creatures gods, this need not give rise to any serious discussion between us, since in our own scriptures we read, The God of gods the Lord hath spoken, and again confess to the God of gods, and again he is a great king above all gods. And where it is said, He is to be feared above all gods, the reason is forthwith added, for it follows, for all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. He said, above all gods, but added, of the nations, that is to say, above all those whom the nations count gods, in other words, demons. By them he is to be feared with that terror, in which they cried to the Lord, Hast thou come to destroy us? But where it is said, the God of gods, it cannot be understood as the God of the demons, and far be it from us to say that great king above all gods means great king above all demons. But the same scripture also calls men who belong to God's people gods. I have said, ye are gods, and all of you children of the Most High. Accordingly, when God is styled God of gods, this may be understood of these gods, and so too when he is styled a great king above all gods. Nevertheless, someone may say, if men are called gods because they belong to God's people, whom he addresses by means of men and angels, are not the immortals, who already enjoy that felicity which men seek to attain by worshipping God, much more worthy of the title? And what shall we reply to this, if not that it is not without reason that in holy scripture men are more expressly styled gods than those immortal and blessed spirits to whom we hope to be equal in the resurrection, because there was a fear that the weakness of unbelief, being overcome with the excellence of these beings, might presume to constitute some of them a god? In the case of men this was a result that need not be guarded against. 
Besides, it was right that the men belonging to God's people should be more expressly called gods, to assure and certify them that he who is called God of gods is their God. Because, although those immortal and blessed spirits who dwell in the heavens are called gods, yet they are not called gods of gods, that is to say, gods of the men who constitute God's people, and to whom it is said, I have said, Ye are gods, and all of you the children of the Most High. Hence the saying of the Apostle, Though there be that are called gods, whether in heaven or in earth, as there be gods many, and lords many, but to us there is but one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we in him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by him. We need not therefore laboriously contend about the name, since the reality is so obvious as to admit of no shadow of doubt. That which we say, that the angels who are sent to announce the will of God to men belong to the order of blessed immortals, does not satisfy the Platonists, because they believe that this ministry is discharged not by those whom they call gods, in other words, not by blessed immortals, but by demons whom they dare not affirm to be blessed, but only immortal, or if they do rank them among the blessed immortals, yet only as good demons, and not as gods who dwell in the heaven of heavens, remote from all human contact. But though it may seem mere wrangling about a name, yet the name of demon is so detestable that we cannot bear in any sense to apply it to the holy angels. Now therefore let us close this book in the assurance that, whatever we call these immortal and blessed spirits, who yet are only creatures, they do not act as mediators to introduce to everlasting felicity miserable mortals, from whom they are severed by a twofold distinction and those others who are mediators, in so far as they have immortality in common with their superiors, and misery in common with their inferiors, for they are justly miserable in punishment of their wickedness, cannot bestow upon us, but rather grudge that we should possess, the blessedness from which they themselves are excluded. And so the friends of the demons have nothing considerable to allege why we should rather worship them as our helpers, than avoid them as traitors to our interests. As for those spirits who are good, and who are therefore not only immortal, but also blessed, and to whom they suppose we should give the title of gods, and offer worship and sacrifices, for the sake of inheriting a future life, we shall, by God's help, endeavor in the following book to show that these spirits, call them by what name, and ascribe to them what nature you will, desire that religious worship be paid to God alone, by whom they were created, and by whose communications of himself to them they are blessed. End of Book Nine, Chapters Thirteen through Twenty Three. Recording by Darren L. Slider, Fort Worth, Texas, www.logoslibrary.org.